Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Seth Stevens. Davidowitz, I forget. Is Steven Davidowitz? Is that your parents? Steven, uh, is your mom? Stevens and my mom's uh, Davidowitz. So, uh, before I was trying to become a writer, I was like, I should just shorten this to Seth Stevens because this is ridiculous. Like nobody's gonna remember my name. Nobody's gonna talk about me. And my mom is like, Seth, you know, the Hitler tried to kill off Davidowitz. Like she made me feel guilty because like the, my grandparents are in the Holocaust. There are hardly any more Davidowitzes left because they're all killed. She's like, you cannot eliminate this name from the planet or something. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll sacrifice my career to keep the Davidowitz. Okay, which brings up a very important data question, and you're the expert on all things data. How many times has the word Hitler been used in an argument to either win or lose the argument? A lot, but I don't know. the real question is whether it's successful. My guess is it's more successful than people like to think. Like with my mom, when she just said that, like I would, I I was just like, yeah, I guess I can't really <laughs> refute your claim. Like that would seem like an obnoxious thing to do to not carry on this name that Hitler tried to destroy. Uh, so even if again it makes it less hurts my career, I feel like I'm fighting Hitler in my small way. <laughs> well, I think it actually helps your career because it makes your name stand out. I think so- it would. Be, well, the ideal name. I should do a data study on this. I think the ideal name would be punchy and mem- like easy to say, but also stand out. It's so, like if it was Seth, like Stevens, like strong man or something like then it would be like really pronounceable, but also like stand out. I don't know. It, you know, um, you would appreciate a Gilbert Gottfried joke. May he rest in peace. When you're done with this podcast, Gilbert Gottfried, the land of three name people. Oh, really? <laughs> and he tells a really great joke, a really incredible joke, actually, that, that, requires substantial amounts of skill to tell about he ends up in the land of three name people like Sarah Michelle Geller uh, uh you know I don't know I can't even th- I can't even think of like other three name people Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh he doesn't mention her <laughs> but and and it's very funny how it takes off from there Sasha Baron Cohen Sasha Baron Cohen he mentions okay uh uh he mentions he mentions quite a few and and then it it takes off from there when he gets stuck in the land of three name people so you would appreciate it having three names and all but we talked last about data in general and you told me people should listen to that last podcast because you told me some amazing statistics that I didn't know about the sorts of things that show up in in Google searches or sort of of the unusual ways in which data 
reveals the truth about the world, truths that we had no idea about before all this massive amounts of data were collected. I mean, like, what's one thing, other than the thing you mentioned about India, because I think people should listen to that one, what is one thing that the world would never have known if not for data that comes from your first book uh, or related to the ideas in your first book? So, like, it's not the India one, which you can listen to, is the first one where I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that existed. The other things are things you knew they existed, but they didn't. you didn't know, like, the extent to them, basically. So, like, I do this thing on people searching for how to give pleasure to their partner. And it seems like uh, men, women are like three, I think three to five times, maybe it was five times, I forget exactly what it was, more likely to search on how to give oral sex to a man than men are to how to give oral sex to a woman. So like women are more generous, basically. And that men actually make more searches on how to give themselves oral sex than how to give a woman oral sex. Uh <laughs> Well, maybe maybe that's because maybe men instinctively know how to do it and women might not instinctively. Well, that's what they would say, but I think I mean it seems unlikely like how where, where would the instinct come from that would make no and, and I think if you talk to women, they would say that men should be googling more on this topic. Uh, I would say and less on how to give themselves, which which also the punchline is that I think most I think most the evidence is that the vast majority of men would be unable to do that even if they googled it. So uh, I don't know. It was very, that was like, but there were things like that were just like amusing. Like, why are people searching this? And like the other one that I found shocking was that I talk about how men make more searches on how to make their, on their penis than any other body part and how to make it bigger. And then one of their top questions is how big is my penis? Which is like, why are you Googling, like asking Google that question? Like Google can't answer that question. There are lots of things like that where just people are ridiculous. Like, like why are, why are people typing these things into Google? So, and this is still related to the first book, but do you think this kind of, it sh that shows two things. One is uh, the obvious that men are more insecure than they let on probably in general, but are people just in general stupid? <laughs> like, like the question about how big is my own penis? You're right. Google can't answer that. Only a ruler can answer that. <laughs> yeah. So are people just stupid for asking that? <laughs> I think basically, yes. The short answer is yes. I think uh, people are kind of, dumb and like and also like particularly if you just talk about the masses not to be too stereotypical but probably we hang out in circles of like people with college degrees and uh you know all these it's kind of a selected group you forget like some some large percent of america i forget what it is is basically functionally illiterate uh particularly certain cities so uh i think there definitely is kind of more idiocy than than we sometimes realize it sounds mean i don't even like that I think even among the people who have college degrees, there's yeah, a certain no, amount of no, idiocy. Well, so there's idiocy. So there's just like idiocy that like is sad idiocy. Like I, I don't even like call it idiocy, but just like lack of education. Uh, that yeah, like se oh, I didn't even sex questions. Like I could not believe the questions on sex. I didn't even put this in everybody's lives, but there are all these questions like, uh, can yeah, can men get pregnant? Can you get pregnant from anal sex? Like all these questions that. Uh, well, and it, it, it was hard to see, they don't like break down by age. So like it, these could be some of them by younger kids who like, obviously all these questions you have to learn somehow. So it's, it makes sense that if a 13 year old or a 14 year old, but it seems like I think adults also have these ridiculous questions on sex and there's like shocking lack of knowledge around like very basics of kind of the birds and the bees of, 
of uh, sexual encounters. And I think that's, yeah, that's also- Even in the US. Even in the US, yeah. Uh, Again, I think that probably is more a geographic one where like we're not, uh, you know, people who, you know, are college educated uh, are going to have more, they're not, they're, they're not going to, you know, ask these, these uh, very basic questions of how pregnant, kind of how pregnancy happens. Uh, but as you get to parts of the country where literacy rates are very low, where a large part of the country doesn't have uh, college educations, like it, it's not even just amusing. It's kind of sad that there is so much lack of information on even basic questions. I, I think we would be very surprised though what the college educated people are also asking because that might be, uh, I, like you almost, you know, you almost would, as you point out in Don't Trust Your Gut, your latest book, sometimes the counter counterintuitive idea is the right idea. Yeah, so yeah, you wouldn't yeah. expect yeah. college educated people to ask stupid questions, but that might be actually the, uh, oh, no, actually then the, the counterintuitive. This one is counterintuitive. Uh, uh, oh yeah, no, yeah. I'll, I'll give you another example. There is, this wasn't mine, but someone found after the Brexit vote in Great Britain, the day after the vote, not before the vote, the number one question was, what is Brexit? Yeah, in Uh, England. Which is like such a ridiculous question to ask after the vote. You need to know that before you actually vote. Uh, You know, like that's not the time to learn about uh, the very basic of what the thing was. And, oh, I think that's more generally people's like very basic questions are like, that's universal and that's education levels, whatever. Like, uh, who is that person? Like, and people also just have such superficial questions. I'm sure these are college educated people as well. But like, if Obama was giving a speech when I was doing this research, it was always like, how old is Obama? Like, that was just like all anybody cared about or like, why, what, where did he get his suit? Like, it's never about the policies talking about or anything. Like nobody seems to care about that. Uh, And I think that is true, you know, New York City, uh, highly educated people, whatever you want to talk about. Everyone just has these really like superficial, basic questions about things. So I, I forget when you were at Google, were you seeing this stuff in real time? Were you working on data stuff at Google? We talked about this before, but I forget. No, but you can see the real stuff. So Google trends, you can see minute by minute data. So like while Obama is speaking, you could just see what are the top questions and it'll always be like, uh, yeah, how when he was speaking, I mean, obviously, like now it would be, I guess, Biden, although nobody watches his talks. I still talk about Obama because like nobody actually cares about Biden. But like if Biden's talking, it would be how old is Biden? Maybe like is Biden like. Oh, I see. So, so in like recently uh, trending, on Go- I'm at Google Trends. Yeah. No, you could just see the, you could see search in the last hour. So if Biden's giving a national t- televised speech, you could just see what people are searching as he's so, speaking. So, you know what's odd is that martial law is being searched in recently trending. Oh. 20,000 plus searches. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So there's probably something going on uh, that caused that, some rumor being spread. Uh, I don't and know. it's funny how most of the searches are sports related. Number number six is the Johnny Depp trial. Oh, yeah, well, that could be something that is in the news. Um, yeah, martial law. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that one. I'm- oh, it's about um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, testimony is about martial law. All right. So yeah, we, we learned something. Okay. Uh, okay. But- yeah. Yeah. You do always learn things by seeing what people are searching. Yeah. No, that's really fascinating. So, so in don't trust your gut, you, you've described this to me as Moneyball for your life and Moneyball was of yeah. course this book by Michael Lewis. And then it became a movie where, uh, uh, baseball coaches started using, um, data to make better choices for their team as opposed like traditionally baseball scouts 
would, you know, there would be talent scouts that would go around the country looking for talented baseball players that you would, the team would then draft. But in Moneyball, they use statistics to show what actually was surprisingly interesting data that correlated to the success of a team. Like if I remember correctly, walks were more for a player, how many times they were walked was more important than how many home runs they hit. Yeah, so exactly. And now like Moneyball has just transformed baseball. Like everybody has statisticians and uh, like you can't not have statistical analysis and run a baseball team. And it kind of occurred to me that uh, like it, it, was, it was such an overwhelming example, like overwhelming proof of the power of data analytics uh, versus kind of making your decisions based on your gut feeling. And it kind of like occurred to me, I'm like, well, actually, when we go about our daily life, when we like decide how to date, who to marry, uh, what career to pick, like how to be happy, how to spend our time, like none of us do take a real, uh, I should say none of us, that's maybe a little exaggeration, but very few of us take what I would consider a real money ball for your life approach to these things and be like, what does the data tell us on these topics? So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to actually spend a few years uh, all these big questions that everybody's actually obviously interested in and are obviously relevant to people's lives. Uh, what is kind of the best data uh, on these topics? And I think it's also, oh, the other reason I wrote this book, there are many motivations. The other reason I wrote this book is I, 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 when I wrote Everybody Lies, I mean, this goes to people lying. I'm like asking people, what do you like in that book? And they're all like, I liked what you took, you know, your section on child abuse, your section on inequality, like your section on abortion, like all these big problems in society, how you can help us. And then it's like, I had like one sentence on, oh, you can see from Amazon Kindle, what people underline and like one sentence on what you should say on a date. And everyone was just like underlining the hell out of it. And like, want to know, like, what do I say on a date? How do I lose weight? How can I be happier? Like all these questions, like where, what should I do as a parent? And I'm like, okay, people are basically lying. <laughs> when they're saying that they care about the world's problems and everybody just wants to know how they should live their life better and basically self-help. So I'm just like, okay, if that's what you guys want, here it is. These are my best, my best analyses on how, on what you should do on all these, like how you self-help basically. Nobody wants to admit they, how much they like self-help. So, right. So, so, so that's fascinating, but also fascinating is that you used the underlining of your old book to essentially focus group what your next book should be about. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of self-referential because like data analysis to write, to decide what book to write. Well, well, like, and you could potentially, like I could take a history of World War One, and if there was one part that was like oddly underlined all over the place and no other part was underlined, then that chapter would suggest, like let's say there was a, a small chapter about Woodrow Wilson having a stroke in the middle of World War One, then, and nothing else was underlined, just that chapter was underlined over and over again. That would suggest oh, someone should write a book just about Woodrow Wilson's stroke. Like everyone's fascinated by it. Yeah, I'm not saying that is reality, but that's how one could use any book to sort of focus group what another book should be. That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, you could just like, I could just read this whole book. I should have just like read other books and just taken like the best paragraph from them. <laughs> that's just that's even them taking together. it one step further. That's a great idea. I'm going to try that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so, So let's talk about dating and relationships. Like, oh, first off, from your first yeah, book, yeah. you said everybody underlined what's the best thing to stay on a date. What, what was that? What is the best thing to stay on a date? So uh, the interesting thing is both they've done speed line. They've done speed dating experiments. It's really fascinating. They, uh, they, tape, tape, they have tape recorders that everything said, every, they know everything everybody says. And then they know at the end of the date, did you want to go on a second date with that person? And like one of the things is we're animals. So when we like someone, we like talk in different ways, like men 
talk in a deep and monotone voice when they like a woman. Like they just, they're probably not even consciously thinking about this, but they just like lower their voice and talk more monotone to try to sound more masculine to impress the other woman. And then, uh, but one of the biggest things is that uh, men need to ask women lots of questions, uh, which again, it goes to like the men are idiots. Like that if they just Googled like the first thing about dating advice, they would probably know this, but clearly lots of men don't know this, which is that the more question marks appear in like their text, uh, the more the woman is likely to, to, uh, 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 to like, like him. And then relatedly, uh, uh, the more a woman talks on a date, the more the word I comes out of a woman's mouth, the more both the man and woman are likely to say it was a positive date. That's interesting. So basically everything has to shift in the direction of the woman, uh, on a first date for it to go well, uh, which I think is kind of definitely goes against, uh, men's instinct. I think men on a date want to show off. And they probably should listen more and show off less, uh, like just, you know, kind of sit there a little more and maybe occasionally uh, say something in a deep monotone voice. And then women, unfortunately, there's not much they can do. Basically, the entire predictive power of whether a man likes her on the first date is uh, how attractive she is. So, so, so like there's almost nothing. But, but, and this gets to some of your data later is that, um, you know, on the attraction scale, women who are less attractive have a lot more chances of success than men who are less attractive. So, Oh yeah. yeah, But, yeah, but, yeah. but is there any one thing that is said most of all on all the dates? Oh, that, w that was said on the dates. Yeah. Is there any one uh, sentence? I, I didn't, they didn't do, they didn't do that. No, I didn't. I didn't. I, that wasn't in the paper. That would be there. So every time you read a paper or I read a paper, I'm always like, man, they should have studied that. Uh, like there's always more that should be said uh, from the data, but they didn't. That, that would be super interesting. Well, it's pretty interesting though uh, that the, if the more a woman says I, the more predictive it is that a second date occurs. So, so that's that's a pretty interesting. Both the woman and man are more likely to have a, want a second date if the woman says I a lot on the first date. That's fascinating. So, so okay. So, what relationships and and dating and and particularly you focus on online dating and also you focus on what are predictors of relationship success. But let's let's. Think about online date. Well, actually, and they're related, but I don't know. Describe this however you want. It's really fascinating. <laughs> so, so the thing I took from rom rom romance from uh, reading the studies is that it goes back to Moneyball for your life. The romantic market is an inefficient market, exactly like Moneyball, almost in the exact same way Moneyball was. So the whole point of Moneyball was like there are all these players who like looked like good players. Like they had square jaws. And they like were tall and they were like the most popular kid in high school and every team wanted them. And then they actually sucked. And then there were these players who didn't look like baseball players. The most famous example was guy, Kevin Euclid, who was on the Boston Red Sox, who was like short for a first baseman. He was kind of chubby. He looked, he looked more like a plumber than a baseball player and nobody wanted him. But the stats were like, no, this guy's incredible. And the stats driven team were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the guy you want. And in dating, like people are so predictably going after these traits that just don't predict happiness in the long term. So people who are like beautiful, everyone wants a beautiful mate. It's like the number one predictor of how successful people do in online dating. And then you look at studies of 11,000 couples and it turns out how attractive their partner is, has basically no relationship to how happy they were report being in a long-term relationship. And then like height of men, like women are obsessed with tall men. And each, some people say each additional inch is worth about $40,000 on the dating market. And then you compare, okay, well, what happens with women who end up with tall men and women who ends up with short men and they report they're just as happy, 
So like, why are women competing like crazy for this trait that doesn't make make people happy? And then uh, men with certain occupations, lawyers, firefighters, military people, highly valued, also doesn't seem to correlate with happiness. Uh, so basically the things that do correlate with happiness when you're in a long-term relationship are all these like psychological traits. Like there's, you know, these stupid psychological quizzes that everyone's always forwarding around that I always ignore. Uh, like, a, do you have a secure attachment style or are you, do you have a growth mindset or are you conscientious? Like, these are the things that if you, if you say, okay, how happy are you with your mate? Those are things that are by far the most predictive of how happy you are. So basically like, but, it, but that could the be, of your life approach. I just want to say that could be survivorship bias in the sense that, uh, uh, because I'm in a happy relationship, I might have a secure attachment style. No, no, it's in your partner. Your partner having a secure attachment style makes you happy. So no matter, no matter what, so it's less like, it, it's not that make, it's making you have this. It's like, if, I'm a, if I have a partner with these traits, I'm more likely to be happy myself in that romantic relationship. I see, I see. But like, of course, the problem is, I, I can tell this to people, <laughs> this is like one chapter where I'm like, I don't think anybody's gonna actually listen to me. No, uh, but because, it's fascinating because like, I've been giving uh, Jay online dating advice based on this chapter. Yeah. Okay. Well, and the other thing is there are all these groups. Okay, so I'm like, I'm basically like date conventionally unattractive people uh, because the competition is gonna be way lower and it doesn't actually correlate with happiness and nobody's gonna listen to that advice. Nobody's like, okay, Seth, you told me to focus on less attractive people. I, I've solved my problem. I'm gonna be, uh, you know, dating less attractive people. But there are like racial dynamics. It's very, very disturbing. We're like African-American women just do way worse in online dating. Like there's so much prejudice against African-American women. It's, it's disturbing. It's like, it's like clear evidence of racism. I don't know why it's not a bigger deal. Like everyone talks about racism in police stops or racism in trials or racism in job market. And they're all incredibly important. But there's also disturbing racism in online dating. But to the extent like, you can't use this to your advantage by focusing on the groups that everyone else is idiotically or even prejudiciously uh, ignoring. Like if they're going to be idiots and mean and nasty towards groups, like focus on those groups because like you're way more likely to get someone with all these other great traits because everyone else is like, is ignoring them for no reason except pure like discrimination. Uh, so like focusing on some of these groups that other people are ignoring is I think a very wise dating decision. And definitely like most people are perpetually single and whine about dating from to the best of my knowledge are trying to date beautiful people and on it, like that everyone else is trying to date. And then they either, and then two, one of two things happens. Either you don't get the dates because like you're not that beautiful yourself and they probably want to date beautiful people back. Or I think more common, you finally, you try to date beautiful people, you finally end up with that beautiful person and lo and behold, she's, or he is not conscientious, has a crappy attachment style, doesn't have a growth mindset, is miserable, like all these negative psychological traits, uh, which probably hurt them in the dating market and made it so they were still available. And then you're like, and then you're, you're, you're unhappy in a relationship. So basically like focusing on the things that everybody wants is really, really dangerous in dating. And I think a lot of unsatisfied dating people are way too focused on these like shiny attributes that grab everybody's attention. So, so, so basically the advice would be to, um, one way or the other, whether it's a racial divide or a looks divide or whatever, focus on, if you want to increase the likelihood that you get 
a lot of responses and a lot of dates and also maybe find someone with a, a good features other than you know the features that everyone's selecting for uh <laughs> go for these groups yeah but no I, i'm a little worried that nobody's gonna follow maybe the racial ones people will follow a little bit but i feel like is any, like is any woman now gonna try to date short men because i said the prejudice against short men is idiotic and like there's no evidence that sh taller men make for better partners. Zero evidence. But do and taller men make for worse partners or, or attractive women? No, they don't make for worse partners. No, no, they don't make more worse partners. But the point is, if they're so highly competed, there's an inefficiency. And your chances of you're going to have to sacrifice something to end up with a, a, a tall man. Like there's going to be there's. There's going to be a sacrifice here, and the sacrifices are on all the things that actually make you happy in the long term, uh, or sacrificing years of being single because you're constantly getting rejected because you're not willing to settle for anybody who's not like six foot, you know, two or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, six foot two is like the maximum. It's like insane on Bumble. Like, I think like I, I forget exactly what it is. They have a height filter. I think like ninety percent of women have a height filter over like five ten or something. Which means like 50% of men who are under 5'10 are like not getting through the height filter on Bumble. So if like, it's hard for me to feel bad than for the woman in like New York City who are complaining they're always single and then Bumble, 50% of the market, they're already knocking out just based on this one attribute that doesn't make for long-term happiness. And you also pointed out something very interesting in your online dating profile, which is that let, let's say everybody's rated on a scale of one to five. Uh, so like if I see someone, I, I, I think there are five, if they're great or one, if they're not so great, you don't want to be essentially, you don't want to be a three. You don't want to be the, the average person, even like, if yeah. you're, even if like you're a good looking person, you don't want to be like 20% better than average. You want to be either disgusting or, or stunning. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be an extreme, like like, like if pink hair, like if you have pink hair and, and, and that's not selected generally you still want that because people are either going to love you or hate you. They're not going to be in, they're not going to be neutral about you. That's exactly, that's a study from Christian Rudder using OkCupid data. And it was totally fascinating. And I think it's, and he, he found that the people who do best in dating have just get like extreme responses. Some people are really into them and some people really don't like them. And yeah, that's better. If everybody thinks you're like, okay, then nobody actually really wants to date you. And even if they do agree to a date to you, date with you on that date, you're going to like, they're not going to be that into you. They're not going to be that attracted to you. So it's better to be just like an all out extreme version of yourself. And it doesn't have to be just physically, like even mentally, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's no surprise that with the books I've written, nerds reach out to me and be like, Seth, you know, what should I do as a nerdy human being like in life? And I'm and like and I can't get a date. I'm so nerdy, and they're always like, you know, I need to be be like more, you know, conventionally attractive or like, uh, you know, learn all the learn about fashion. And I'm like, no, 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 nerd it up. Like, go all in on your nerdy characteristic, and then just you're gonna eventually find the niche of uh, women or men who are really into nerds, and they're gonna be so into you. Everything's gonna be better. So like, don't at all. The the worst thing you can do is tone down your uh, extreme qualities. Then everyone will just be like, yeah, you're fine. You know, again, Brad Pitt can tone down his extreme uh, qualities. Natalie Portman can tone down her extreme qualities. Their probably best bet is just be like, 
you know, yeah, don't, if, don't rock the boat. <laughs> you know, everyone's just like throwing themselves at you. Okay. But if you're not Brad Pitt or Natalie Portman, if you're not like the most beautiful person on the planet, yes, be an extreme version of yourself. Uh, you know, grab people's attention with, you know, wild hair, extreme nerdiness, uh, whatever it is about you, some crazy hobby, like just go all in on that. And then just a lot of people will think you're disgusting and that's totally fine. But some people will be really into you. And it's, t it's totally been true in my life, by the way, like my current girlfriend, her type was nerds. Like that was just, uh, there are people out there whose type is just nerds. And like, you know, and so it's like, I didn't have to change anything. I just had to be like as nerdy as I wanted to be. I could talk about, you know, our, our dates. I could talk about all the data on anything. Like she'd just be like eating it up. I didn't have to like read. Let's see your picture. Do you have a picture on you right now? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Like, is she, is she valued on the dating market much higher than you? Do you think I will determine for the audience if you're dating out of your league or not? <laughs> oh, I'm definitely dating out of my league. I'm consistently out of my league. I should mention in every single case, I can't think of a single instance where I was above my league. I was always below my, I've always dated. No, I always dated above my league in every relationship I've ever had. I have as well. This is my very beautiful out of my league girlfriend. Oh yeah, you're 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 out of your league. <laughs> She's out of your league. <laughs> you. Is that a compliment? <laughs> it's 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 neither here nor there. I've I've perpetually I like I said I don't think even once I've dated within my league. But that's going against my advice because I say you should not focus on physical attractiveness. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So what, what should be in someone's profile to stand out? Like, is there any study on like, and, and I, I forget if they've you mentioned They've done this. studies. I'm not that impressed with the studies they've done. They've claimed like, they always do these things like, what, what tends to happen is they do a study like being with a tiger or being with a lion, you know, like, you know, being with a ti- next to a tiger makes you more attractive. And then every man reads the study and they all put tigers and then every woman is. And then it's the opposite of being an extreme, like being an extreme. So I think once like the study right. comes out saying something, too many people do it and you can't really like uh, win. You can't. It, it becomes like an unsuccessful strategy. So I think. So oh, the other thing. uh that is ma- a massive uh, can can really bring you way way above your league is being is just being more aggressive and asking people out uh, for both men and women. Uh, like I think the worst advice they give women is this idea that being hard, you should be hard to get, uh, and I think that's just totally untrue. Like uh, being asking tons of people out. Uh, dramatically increases your odds of getting a yes. I mean, it's it's it's, it's pretty much a mathematical law that the more people you add, uh, add on all levels, out, on all levels, and the data from dating sites, I was shocked by the odds. What happens when, like, as you said, people rank people. So, uh, let's say a one on conventional attractiveness asks out a ten, and I'm like, if a one asks out a ten, like I. Their odds are like one in a thousand, like one in a million, like no one is going to win over a 10 in online, in, in dating. And the numbers tend to be about 14% for a, a male one and like 30% for a female one. And this like, talk about punching above your weight. That's like, you know, like one is like, I don't even consider, I consider myself very low. Even I'm not saying I'm, I'm a one uh, on, on dating. So uh, like, that's just like a massive uh, like way higher chances than I would uh, guess. And that's even an online dating. Like I, th- I think they haven't done a study, but I think in a bar, it's even more extreme because you get so much credit for the chutzpah of asking someone out that if you just like are, are way more, uh, you know, ask more people out are more, uh, you know, less fearful of, I guess, rejection. 
I think uh, my strong suspicion, uh, which I want to do a study on this, I didn't, I ran out of time. But when you see someone dating well above the league, their league, frequently what explains it is that they were just rejected way more than other people. And they just ask people out. There's math about this. It's like the, it's like the math of a coin flip uh, almost like, you know, if you flip a coin a hundred times, yeah, the odds of never getting tails is almost infinitesimal, right? Yeah, yeah. The odds that you did a, had a hundred heads in a row because yeah. at any one roll, any one flip in that sequence, it's 50, 50, but for the whole sequence, the odds of only getting heads and never getting a single tail is, is almost zero. And it's the same thing here. It's a, let's say it's a one out of a hundred chance. It, yeah. It doesn't have to be 50, 50. Even if you have a 14% chance, the odds of a 14% thing of a, uh, so the, so it's 86% chance that you get a no, the odds of an 86% chance hap thing happening 40 times in a row is almost nothing. Like if, if you have a 14% chance, you do it enough, eventually you're going to get a yes. Uh, but people don't want to do that. So I also have a recommendation. I didn't include the book. There's something called rejection therapy. Cause Jay, your engineer was saying that he did before you joined the show, he was saying, you know, I, I can't follow this advice to just ask everyone out because I'm too sensitive about rejection. And the best thing to deal with that is there's a game called rejection therapy where you just every day you do something ridiculous. You ask a ridiculous request that you're going to get no to. So like, let's say if you're in Manhattan right now, like walk out the street and ask someone in their car to give you a ride to Long Island. Just be like, I need a ride to Long Island. Can you give me the ride? Or like, uh, I need to move a couch from my living room to a bedroom. Can you help me out? And just a stranger. And they're going to say no. They're going to say no. Like, oh, uh, you charged me $5 for this coffee. Can I get it for 50 cents? Like just these ridiculous things that you're going to get no to. And eventually you just get like desensitized to no. And once you do that, then you can start asking for these 14% chances. So the beautiful woman or the beautiful man, uh, you ask them out, which... Uh, and then you'll be, you'll be like just desensitized to the nose. Let's say you're a one and you have a 14% chance of getting a response from a 10. Okay. Like yeah. a model or whatever, or in either yeah. direction, male or female. And you think to yourself, oh, an 86% chance of getting rejected. There's no way I'm going to do it. Well, I just did the math here, uh, using a calculator on Google. If you approach 30 women, which is not a lot, one a day for a month, there's a 98.4% chance that you're going to get a yes in that month from a model looking man or woman, 98% chance exactly. of getting a yes. Now, of course I, I need to caveat that there's a, there's a scene. Uh, this was a study of get, getting your messages responded to on an online dating site. And it included a small number of go fuck yourself messages probably as well. Uh, so there's a difference between getting your message responded to and getting a yet and getting a, a official date, let alone, uh, you know, a second date, a third date, a fourth date, a relationship, a marriage. Uh, so there are, there are many steps to get rejected along the way. But I do think that people are way too shy in dating and that uh, you, can, uh, you can massively increase your odds. My dad told me something that if you include this story, only acknowledge that I said this is horribly politically incorrect and not appropriate in the Me Too movement. But he told me when I was growing up, or about a friend of his who basically asked every woman he knew to have sex, which again, not appropriate in this day and age, but he said he had more sex than anybody ever knew uh, because most people would throw their drinks at him, but occasionally you would get, you know, a yes. So 
Well, uh, and that's where this rejection therapy comes in, which is extremely valuable. That's extremely valuable advice. Not stand on the corner yeah. and ask well, every woman to have sex with you, but get used to being rejected. Like one great yeah. thing, one great example I always do is I always ask for a 10% discount. Like if I'm ordering yeah. a coffee at a Starbucks, I'll ask for a 10% discount. They almost always say no, but it's uh, a worthwhile practice. But now, okay, what about in the, in the, in the, in your first message? Longer messages. There is evidence that longer messages, and it's kind of obvious things, but longer messages, more personalized messages. So many people just cut and paste a message, and that really is unsuccessful. And just showing off, like any talent. So I kind of learned this. This was kind of goes with being polarizing. So I'd accumulate all these like accomplishments in life. And when I was single, which I, I know I'm not, but when I was single, I kind of learned my first message should just be incredibly arrogant. And it would always grab people's attention. So I just like listed, it was practically a CV. <laughs> it wasn't even a, 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 a message. And, but I'm like, you got to stand out from the pack somehow. And even if the first question is like, wow, that was an arrogant message. Then the second message will just be like, yeah, yeah. I, I just try to grab attention, but I'm not arrogant. Like, let me just get you a coffee and then just have more conversation where you, then you use the advice from the first dates. And I start asking questions and having her talk about herself and being a more showing that I'm not just like an arrogant, self-absorbed bastard. Uh, so something like that, like just saying, hey, I think a lot of people, it goes with not putting yourself out there, uh, that a lot of people, even when they're asking someone out, ask someone out in a way that's self-protective. So you say like, hey, yeah. how are you? Even if it's online. Even if it's online. I think there are ways people play games to uh, kind of lower the sting of, of, of rejection, make kind of give plausible deniability even if it's online and certainly offline, uh, it's very hard. Uh, before I, having done some of this research or, you know, read some of these studies and uh, when I was still single, I got really good at saying the words, I would like to date you. Would you like to date me? Or not even the words, but just like <laughs> the sentiment. <laughs> like, I want to date yeah. you. Do you want to date me? That's like the hardest thing for a human being to say. Uh, and you know, like, cause it's, it's so much putting yourself out there and there is the chance that the person says, are you kidding me? Like, you know, have, <laughs> no, of course not. I have no interest in dating you or, you know, they're probably not gonna be that mean, but the no is a real possibility. Uh, and certainly I heard no, uh, you know, many, many times, but, uh, eventually you, you, you hear the yes. And I think the, the ultimate, uh, dating strategy is combining the being a polarized version of yourself with asking lots of people out. So if you're a nerd like with, me, with going for with going for underserved categories, with going up for underserved, yeah, 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 oh yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, so if you focus on let's say a group, let's say a racial group, or a, you know that's a little politically incorrect, maybe, but like if you focus on groups that are undervalued, and you're it's like data, Mis it's can't, yeah, it is data, and you're Mister Nerdy. Like, as I was, and I'm just like, my first date, along with asking about asking the other person about themselves, because that show works, but also just being like, hey, did you hear about this new study? Uh, and do you know that if you ask someone out uh, 30 times, you have a 98.4% chance of success? And I literally said things like that on my first dates. Uh, and you just do it with lots of people. Eventually, you meet, as I did, a woman who's really into nerds. Uh, so in that, one of the reasons so there is... One of the reasons there is a 14% chance of a one asking out of 10 is because like the one in the tens, 
is some are some people who are really into whatever you have to offer. Uh, so if I'm a, a one on looks, but I'm like really into data analysis and whatever else, then somewhere in the tens is going to be uh, someone really into data analytics, uh, and then I have a chance with them. So, but but you're never going to do that if you don't ask enough uh, people out. So, uh, what's what's yeah. the role of of has anyone measured the role of humor in in all these things? So I would imagine if your if your first message is funny, that's going to have a higher response than. If it's not funny, I think though some people say, and I think they're correct, that in dating, frequently laughing at thinking someone's funny is you think they're attractive first, and then you think they're funny. So, like when Brad Pitt sends his message, he's just like, "Hey, uh, didn't think of uh, funny uh, seeing you here," which is like not funny at all, and the response will just be, "LOL, laughing my ass off. You're hilarious." Uh, uh, whereas, you know, the, the one or the two or the three uh, saying the message has a hard time. But, you know, the, the thing I've I've heard, I haven't seen data on this, but I want to do a study. I didn't finish this. This may have to come my next book where I literally just analyzed mismatched couples. Uh, so I, I started doing this thing where I, the New York Times, uh, they list in their wedding section, like a picture of the couple that ended up together. And I was literally going to just ask, like, people to rate the couples and then just see like the ones who end the, the ones who ends up with tens or the fours who ended up with sevens and just like do a data analysis of everything I could find about these people to see what led to that uh, improvement. But people have suggested that they think the biggest way people can get out of their league is a combination of humor and confidence, uh, which there probably is some truth. Usually when something is so like, uh, when so many people think it, even if there's not data on it, there's probably a little truth to it. So I wouldn't say like, th I haven't seen any studies that have proven the value of humor and confidence, but I wouldn't recommend people not use that. Uh, if you can be funny and confident, I definitely, but, uh, but your whole point it. is though, is that you can get out of your league and out of your league is a very judgmental thing. Like, you know, whatever you, people know what we mean. We're not being sexist or, and I'm talking in both directions or, or straight or gay or whatever, but, uh, uh, you gave, you gave very reliable advice for basically dating outside your category. Let's put it, <laughs> uh, which is but, no, again, no, underserved and, groups. And, and, and the, and the other thing is uh, talk about not being sexist, not being whatever. Like I literally say that dating out of your league is a mistake, uh, because it's not going to make you happy. Like I, you can be when you're married for four or five years, uh, the last thing you're going to care about is that your partner is really tall or your partner is really beautiful or impresses people at a party. Uh, you're going to be really interested. Yes, there is. I think there is a formula. If your goal were to date out of your league, I think there is there. there I think there are a few big tricks. Uh, there's actually one other trick that I didn't talk about. Say it. There's overwhelming evidence. There used to be an idea that uh, people are attracted to opposites, opposites tracked. That's kind of a line, opposites tracked. They've analyzed data on this and it's completely untrue. So uh, people are more are, are more likely to message someone who shares just about anything in common with them. Shame, education, same, what, not just like education level, but went to the same school. So if you went to Michigan University, you're more likely to get responses from someone who went to Michigan than from someone who went to Wisconsin University, even though they're you know similarly ranked. Uh, schools or Midwestern schools. That data is also very specific. Like if you have the same initials, yeah. if you have instance. the same initials, someone is more likely to respond to your messages if they share your initials, which is completely irrational. 
But I think you can also, if you're really trying to be strategic and maximizing uh, like the chances of getting a yes from someone, let's say, you know, out of your league. Uh, but I just want to clarify out of your league for one second. For yeah. the 10, for what we're calling a 10, you might be out of her league because she's interested in data analysts. Yeah, like yeah, you're a 10 in data analysis. So so <laughs> yeah. she's trying to get out of her league and not just go out with all these like dumb jocks or whatever. She wants a data analyst. That's, that's it, was, it was a 10 to her one. That's a good way. That's a good way to think about it. Uh, but so, okay. What, what's the so, advice? But the advice is focus on a market with similarity. So like if, if someone shares your initials, you should be more likely to ask them out. Uh, even though it's irrational, they're going to be more likely to appreciate you. And if someone shares your same, went to the same school, uh, has the exact same hobby, like all these things, they actually don't predict, surprisingly, they don't predict relationship happiness much at all. Uh, so when they've studied these 11,000 couples, uh, the study I refer to in my book that I, I speak heavily about is this study by 86 scientists led by Samantha Joel. And ha sharing a lot in common of uh, uh, explains a very small percent of relationship happiness. So, you know, you both like yoga or you both like the same TV show or let alone you both share the same initials. You went to the exact same university. This is not a big factor in happiness. But the fact that everyone seems to be drawn to this you might as well use it to your advantage, right? And 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 both focus more of your attention on people who share the things in common with you. And when you and when you share the things in common, really point at them out, uh, really lean into them, uh, because it does seem like people are drawn to similarity, uh, contrary to the idea that people are drawn to opposites. And basically, from what I got from the book, nothing predicts relationship success. Like in, in terms of if relationship success is determined by oh, I'm happy with my wife, girlfriend, husband, whatever. Nothing really predicts it, except maybe if you were happy before you met the person. And there's a slight, a slight increase from good psychological traits in your partner. So if you're happy beforehand, you, you, that's the biggest predictor. And then if your partner is, has a growth mindset, is conscientious, has a secure attachment style, that's going to up your odds more as well. But it's still not... As it's there's still a huge amount of unpredictability. And the other thing, you know, this is for advice who are people already in relationships, is they've tried to predict changes in relationship happiness. So let's say right now, Seth, are you happy in a relationship? I'd say yes, you know, I'm very, very happy. Uh, but are you gonna be happy in two years, three years, you know, down the road? They they don't have data on 20 years, 30 years. And there it's basically impossible to predict changes. So the fact that I'm happy now does predict I'm more likely to be happy in the future. But anything about the two of us, you know, whether we share shared things in common, had the same hobbies, uh, came from a similar background, uh, anything else is as far as we can tell irrelevant to predicting future happiness. And that has important implications for how you pr uh, pick whether to stay in a relationship. Because I think a lot of people, they're in a, this is, you know, certainly in my friends, this is a common experience, is uh, people will be uh, very, very unhappy, but on paper, they're like, this thing has to work. They're like, you know, just look at us on paper. You know, we're both, you know, they, they start listing all the things they have in common and they, they give it, you know, way longer a shot than the data suggests you should. So the data suggests it's not working. You know, certainly there's always a chance it can turn around, but don't think that because you have these things in common, that's going to turn things around in the future. And conversely, you have these people, like these people meet, they have totally different backgrounds. They might even come from different countries. Uh, 
they're and they're they have this great connection. They make each other happy, but they're kind of like, like this has to just be temporary because you know I, I always imagine the person I'd marry would have these qualities that this person doesn't have, and that's a, a, a awful mistake, terrible mistake according to the data. If you're happy, like the best algorithm to decide whether to stay in a relationship is basically how happy over the last however long period have you been on average. And if the number is above a certain point, stay. And if the number is below a certain point, leave. That's going to beat any other kind of idea that you could come up with. So are we helping out Jay, the engineer? Yes. I'm, Jay is writing he's, everything down. He's gonna, gone. So I'm like, are you, I hope he's yeah. feverishly taking notes. Is he? Uh, he no, he's, he's. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm like, okay, now I have to, I have to change my profile. <laughs> You know, I have to. Make and he's sure been, he's I just he's been he sent out seventy messages in the past fifty minutes just because here oh, yeah, quantity yeah. was important. He's got the confidence and humor already. Just talking to him, I, I feel that's in him and the interestingness. He's got all these interesting ideas, so he's just got to like really lean into that and be an extreme version of Jay. Would be my advice. So, so so okay, but here's a good question: Have they ever measured um, like in your first approach? Like you were just being very complimentary to Jay. So what in your first approach, if you're very complimentary to the woman you're approaching, does that help at all? Maybe they get turned off by that. There so is it's no this, predictive. I, I had, there is this idea of quoting of a neg. Uh, so that was, there, there were these books, the game came out, Neil Strauss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This idea that a man's supposed to neg a woman, uh, and you know, or, if, vice versa. She, or, or a woman's supposed to neg a man. Yeah. And say, or, uh, we need to a man uh, to another man, a woman to another woman, a, a yeah. non-binary person to a, <laughs> gender <whatever>. neutral, <laughs> gender neutral. That there's a value to nagging someone to basically making fun of them and teasing them so you look more valuable. My answer to that is always like you can always you can always do things that will attract a certain group of people, but are those the people you want to attract? So. There are, there's variation in what people are attracted to. So there are some people, give an extreme example, there are some people who, if you commit a crime, they'll find you very attractive. Uh, and if you, there are people who are attracted to being, to abuse of various sorts, emotional abuse, even physical abuse, like there's everything out there. But are those the people you want to attract? I would say no. So uh, there are definitely people out there who actually are attracted to being very nice to them and being very complimentary uh, and being honest. I think the thing that I've that that I found and now I'm admittedly going against the theme of my book. Don't trust your gut because I'm talking about things that I've never seen data on. Uh, and I'm literally talking about my gut feelings based on uh, many, many, okay. many, many years of single life. Uh is things that are good are very specific compliments. Uh, so saying you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, or, you know, these cheesy lines, you know, your eyes light up the night sky. Uh, that's not, I think, uh, uh, certainly in my experience, that was never a winning strategy. I, I didn't try it very long, but saying something unique about a person uh, that they might not know about them uh, is, I think, uh, valuable that, that, that the best compliment would be something they didn't, that, that's really right on and shows that you're actually paying attention to them and think about them in kind of a unique, uh, unique way. So that would be my advice, uh, really moving for away from the, don't trust your gut angle and towards the trusting my gut. But I, I do think that the things that are, that are based on data, like, I think there are some things where you don't have data on them. So like, I, I've never seen a study on nagging. 
like I, there, maybe I should do a study because it's a very interesting topic. So I, I, as far as I know, that it's an open question. And when there's no data, you have to go based on like your gut or your experience or things you've heard in the world. But then there are some times where there legitimately is data. And then you can uh, go on a different, you know, and then, and then you can go on those database approach. And I think that those areas can, I really believe that you can dramatically increase your dating success using some of these data driven strategies to dating. So, well, and this, this will be, this is going to be a part one. So the part one on don't trust your gut was all about dating and romance. And I want to do a part two on getting rich because you have a great chapter on that. And so let's start part two. 